the best in Bitcoin made audible. I'm Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What's up guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible and I am Guy Swan. We are digging into another investment thesis on Bitcoin today. This one from ARK Invest. It might take, uh, I think just based on its size, it'll probably take us two days at least to get through this. Uh, but it's really good and I love kind of the perspective on this one. Uh, uh, we've, got a, we've done a number of these on the show now and um, I always find it interesting that even though there's a lot of commonalities between them, and typically, you know, they hit on the macro environment and just finance in general. And uh, there's a lot of those great fundamentals. There's also something unique in a lot of these investment theses. And uh, this one is by Yassin Elmandra. Uh, I think I said that name right. Uh, we've actually uh, read some things by Yassin previously on the show. At least one thing I can't remember. I'll actually dig through and see if I can uh, find uh, those reads. We'll have them available in the show notes and on the website. And this was also brought to my attention by Corey Clipston from Swan Bitcoin. So shout out to those guys. Uh, obviously, if you're not stacking sats, you need to be. Uh, and you should use swanbitcoin.com slash guy. Uh, that's where you're going to go and get, uh, what is it, $10? $10 free in sats, I think, just for signing up. Um, and of course, you support this show. But more importantly, you get a super simple set it and forget it way to auto buy and then auto withdraw Bitcoin to your own keys. It is just awesome to know that I am always stacking sets. I think I've gotten about a sixth of a Bitcoin right now just from my swan Bitcoin stack. Uh, and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to think about it. It's pretty great. Swanbitcoin.com slash guy. Let's go ahead and get into this piece. Um, again, this is from ARK Invest and actually CoinMetrics. This is kind of a joint thing uh, that they've got here. And uh, this one, it's, it's part one, so it looks like it's going to be a continuation thing. But this one is titled Bitcoin, a novel economic institution. Abstract. This paper lays out the case for Bitcoin. In part one, we describe how the information age gave rise to Bitcoin, a novel economic institution designed to challenge legacy financial systems. We explain how legacy financial institutions, which have evolved through a trust-based model, appear to have fallen short of the four economic assurances necessary for a predictable financial system. We then analyze Bitcoin's behavior in relation to these four economic assurances, and explain why we believe it is designed uniquely to satisfy them. After explaining the merits of Bitcoin as a novel institution in Part 1, we assess the investment merits of Bitcoin as a monetary asset in Part 2. While many investors question its merit as an investment, we believe that Bitcoin is the most compelling monetary asset to emerge since gold. We begin our analysis by detailing the evolution of Bitcoin's price and sizing its potential market opportunity over the next five years. We then examine Bitcoin's correlation of returns 
relative to traditional asset classes, making the case for a strategic allocation. Finally, we assess the maturity of Bitcoin in the marketplace and conclude with thoughts on its allocation in a well-diversified portfolio. 1. The Evolution of Economic Organization Advancements in civilization have led to increasingly complex modes of economic organization. In hunter-gatherer society, humans lived in small groups and relied predominantly on face-to-face -face interactions. They established communities in rural areas, with economic production limited to manual human labor. With the transition to agriculture, humans began interacting in larger groups and adopting new forms of social organization to scale interactions. They formed towns and cities with resource-rich regions at the centers of trade and commerce. As manufacturing processes advanced, an era of industrialization emerged. Productivity increased as workers flocked to factories, and tasks that previously required months could be completed in days. Today, the focus of the economy has shifted from traditional industries developed through industrialization to industries enabled by information technology. Economic activity has migrated from the physical to the digital world, with power granted to those in charge of storing and distributing information. As groups grow and become more complex, institutions evolve to scale interactions, governing the behavior with a system of rules intended to facilitate coordination. Marriage, markets, governments, banking, laws, and firms are examples of institutions that have emerged over the course of human history. The advancement of technology during the information age has given rise to novel institutions. Digital logic, Transistors and integrated circuit chips have created powerful tools, from computers and microprocessors to cell phones and the internet, enabling participation in institutions at unprecedented scale. Social media networks have transformed the way we communicate and interact. Online marketplaces have led to widespread instant commercial matchmaking. Digital media platforms allow the streaming of content libraries consumed on demand. Perhaps the most notable institution to rise from the creation of these tools, Bitcoin has called into question the very basis of economic organization. In 2009, the internet birthed Bitcoin, a novel economic institution giving individuals the ability to participate in a politically neutral realm of economic activity. Its coordination transcends borders, locations, and jurisdiction. Instead of relying on centralized intermediaries to enforce its rules, Bitcoin relies on a distributed network of computers. This architecture enables it not only to function outside the purview of legacy systems, but also to challenge them. While the full ramifications of Bitcoin's creation are not well understood, we believe that it will contribute more dramatically and profoundly to the evolution of monetary and financial systems than any other breakthrough in history. 2. The financial system has evolved to rely on trust-based institutions. Quote, Commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. While the system works well enough for most transactions, 
it still suffers from the inherent weaknesses of the trust-based model. Satoshi Nakamoto, The Bitcoin White Paper The promise of Bitcoin is best understood in relation to traditional financial systems, which rely on centrally controlled institutions to enforce the rules, record-keeping, and adjudication of the system. These institutions were created to standardize the exchange of value, manage wealth, and facilitate economic activity. Central banks, for example, govern monetary policy, while commercial banks custody and manage assets, and centralized payment processors mediate consumer transactions. Under a trust-based model, the integrity of an institution is a function of those controlling the institution. Rules enforced from the top down are guaranteed if those in control are trustworthy. Institutional decision-making typically is opaque and unpredictable. Rule changes are at the discretion of those in control, sometimes creating a misalignment of incentives between the institution and its participants. As institutions grow in importance, the entities controlling them accumulate more power, potentially exposing participants to harmful behavior. As we will explore, financial systems founded on a trust-based model fail to provide predictable economic assurances, specifically under a financial system. 1. Value should be exchanged globally and freely. 2. Wealth should be owned wholly and protected. 3. Rules should be enforced reliably and predictably. And 4. Integrity of the system should be verifiable. In the next section, we will detail our view on how trust-based institutions fall short of satisfying these economic assurances. 3. The trust-based model falls short. Assurance 1. Value should be exchanged globally and freely. Why we believe the trust-based model fails to meet Assurance 1. Centralized parties determine the eligibility of participants and control the flow of capital. Today, financial institutions rely on centralized authorities to control the flow of transactions and determine the eligibility of participants. While controlling flows of capital can protect the financial system from malicious activity, who defines malicious activity? If one transaction can be censored and controlled, can't all transactions be censored and controlled? Can't the powers that be deprive participants of the ability to exchange value globally and freely? At both the private and nation-state levels, financial institutions exert varying degrees of control. At the private level, payment processors like PayPal can and do censor users, often throwing them off their platforms without explanation. In some cases, governments pressure private companies to do so. Because these companies must abide by local laws, they can face limits to serving customers on a global basis, leading to a highly fragmented global financial infrastructure. At the nation-state level, governments sometimes impose restrictions on the free movement of capital. Specifically, a monetary authority choosing to fix exchange rates and control the money supply cannot accommodate the free flow of capital. Such restrictions not only limit a citizen's ability to move anything of value freely and globally, but they also create economic distortions. Instead of subjecting local banks and markets to competitive pressures, governments can force their citizens to misallocate capital, 
curbing productivity, investment efficiency, and economic growth. In the long run, institutions risk making decisions favoring those in control at the expense of customers, users, or citizens. During the last 10 to 15 years, countries have been increasing capital controls rather than decreasing them. Since 2007, the share of countries increasing capital controls has soared 300% to 15%, while the share of countries reducing them has dropped 60% to 5%, as shown below. And there we have figure one showing the evolution of changes in capital controls since the 1980s, comparing the percentage of countries that are raising capital controls versus reducing them. Uh, and it's from 1985 to 2020. The PDF of this full paper will be posted in the show notes, so you can check that out. There are numerous other graphics to accompany this as we go through it. Assurance 2. Wealth should be protected and owned wholly. Why we believe the trust-based model fails to meet assurance too. Participants rely on a local enforcer to grant property rights and protect property. An important indicator of economic prosperity is the protection of property rights. A well-established private property system gives individuals exclusive control over their wealth and the right to use their resources as they see fit. Incentives to work, save, and invest lead to a more efficient allocation of resources and greater economic output. In a trust-based model, the protection of assets depends largely on the existence and reliability of local protection, typically the government. In the absence of reliable local protection, individuals often have been unable to protect their wealth. In 1933, for example, the United States banned private ownership of gold, including coins, bullion, and gold certificates, a ban that persisted for more than 40 years. In 2016, the government of India announced the demonetization of all 501,000 rupee banknotes which many critics considered confiscation of property without due process. Then in late 2019, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, HSBC, seized the funds of individuals affiliated with the Hong Kong protests, highlighting once again that centrally controlled wealth is guaranteed only if institutions are willing to protect it. Subject to weak and unpredictable property rights, Citizens must rely on the protection inherent in the properties themselves. Assets protected in the absence of authority are, quote, deep, while those protected by authorities are shallow, as shown below. Today, institutions controlled centrally typically protect assets but present various trade-offs. Immovable and impossible-to-hide physical assets, like real estate, are vulnerable to weak local enforcement, because they can be seized more easily than cash. Unlike cash, however, real estate cannot be demonetized. Likewise, local bank managers can freeze bank accounts, but cannot seize gold bars stored under mattresses. Conversely, criminals can break into houses and steal gold bars, but cannot freeze bank accounts. And here we have figure two showing the spectrum of asset protection, comparing shallow and deep assets. Assurance 3. Rules should be enforced reliably and predictably. Why we believe the trust-based model 
fails to meet Assurance 3. Centrally controlled institutions can enforce and change rules arbitrarily. Because they enforce rules in unpredictable ways, centrally controlled institutions can endanger a system's integrity. Central banks exemplify the problems associated with unilateral and unreliable rule changes. In the 18th century, the widespread adoption of fiat currencies imbued monetary authorities with the ability to control their money supplies. Introduced as an alternative to commodity-based money, fiat money was and is issued by the state, backed exclusively by the full faith and credit of issuing governments. Monetary authorities typically manipulate the supply of money to smooth business cycles, ensure price stability, and or minimize unemployment. Through open market operations, they swap financial assets, typically short-term government debt, for central bank deposits. Seeking to increase the supply of money, they can purchase government debt, which lowers interest rates, increasing the liquidity and lending ability of commercial banks. As short-term interest rates approach zero, central banks can choose more unconventional policies, like quantitative easing, purchasing financial assets other than government bonds to expand the money supply. In 2000, the Bank of Japan began an aggressive quantitative easing program to curb deflation, adding private debt and stocks to its purchase of Japanese government bonds. Since the global financial crisis in 2008, unconventional policies similar to those in Japan have proliferated around the world, with no restrictions on the amount of money printed. In the face of unpredictable changes in monetary policy, individuals typically have to grapple with the fallout. If a central bank mismanages its country's money supply, fiat money can lose its purchasing power to inflation, if not hyperinflation. Since the advent of fiat currency, hyperinflation has destroyed purchasing power 29 times, often with a cascading impact on weaker monetary regimes. In the last century, Three monetary policy changes cascaded, cutting the purchasing power of almost half of the world's currencies by 50%. The creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 and Europe's decision to abandon the gold standard in 1918. The U.S. shift from the gold standard to the gold exchange standard in 1933. And U.S. abandonment of the gold exchange standard in 1971, as shown below. Could the Fed's recent response to the coronavirus pandemic have similar consequences? Figure 3 is the share of countries whose domestic currency lost more than half of its purchasing power over a five-year period. This chart shows data dating back all the way to 1804 up to modern times, and there are three significant spikes um, upward into the 40 to 50% range of the number of countries losing more than half of their purchasing power in that span of time. And it is shortly after the creation of the Federal Reserve, shortly after the enactment of the Gold Reserve Act, and after the complete abandonment of the gold standard. Assurance 4. Integrity of the system should be verifiable. Why we believe the trust-based model fails to meet assurance for. Centrally controlled institutions lack transparency and auditability. A monetary system that cannot be verified is unlikely to meet the first three economic assurances. 
Little transparency suggests that institutions have no incentive to be accountable. In a more consumer-friendly regime, participants would be able to audit and verify the integrity of the monetary system, evaluating whether or not the enforcement of assurances is consistent and objective. Highlighting the importance of verification was the lack of transparency associated with commercial bank capital requirements leading up to the great financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. Banks were undercapitalized to such an extent that auditors could not verify enough capital to cover the risks of default. Unable to audit them, investors and customers had to rely instead on third parties during one of the worst financial crises of the modern era. Commercial banks must maintain cash reserves against customer deposits, determining not only their ability to create credit, but also the customer funds that they put at risk. While they have the legal obligation to return deposits on demand, banks may not be equipped to do so. No bank has enough reserves to satisfy the withdrawal of all deposits at once. Moreover, in the U.S. today, the minimum reserve requirement for deposit institutions is zero. Indeed, since 1995, the average bank reserve requirement globally has dropped by nearly 80% as shown below. And figure four is a chart of the global average reserve requirement ratio, spanning from 1994 to 2020. Part four, Bitcoin, a financial institution eliminating the need for a trust-based model. All right, we're gonna stop right there for today. We're just under halfway through, but we're kind of moving from the legacy system into the Bitcoin system, and then they'll hit the conclusion afterward. This was just a really unique perspective. Um, like it's, it's funny, so many of these uh, investment theses are, like they hit a lot of some of, the, uh, um, some of the same fundamentals and the core argument behind like what Bitcoin can actually, actually provide. But I really liked the comparison to the legacy financial system, specifically like breaking down very explicit assurances and how we can see those like break apart. One thing I actually want to mention is uh, the example they gave, uh, where is it? Since the advent of fiat currency, hyperinflation has destroyed purchasing power 29 times. And this was actually sourced from the worst cases of hyperinflation on Investopedia which you can go and check that out. But um, uh, I actually uh, much prefer, and I think it's far more, um, uh, well, both, both accurate, but just thorough, um, on measuring hyperinflation by Steve Hanka and Charles Bushnell. I think this is actually the one, if I'm not mistaken, this is the one that's mentioned in the Bitcoin standard as well. Um, but uh uh, heck, maybe maybe this should be something that I actually cover on the show. It's not too long, uh, but uh, it talks about uh, going through history, looking at uh, 57, not 29, but 57 episodes of serious hyperinflation ending with Venezuela. It was written discussing uh, Venezuela's episodes of hyperinflation as the 57th, and that all of them except one, so 56 of the 57 have happened since fiat currency. Um, so this is literally something that has destroyed 
unbelievable amounts of wealth in the world and destroyed societies and economies and whole civilizations of people just wiped out savings, wiped out decades of people's lives on a mass scale that exist almost universally in the age since fiat currency has existed. Like This is a stain on all of history um, since we have moved entirely to the trust-based model. Not only is it something that doesn't work, it works horribly in comparison to the money that came before it. There are plenty of things that we essentially get in like the industrial age and um, the digital age that make up for it because we can produce so much more stuff and we have such uh, so much faster communication, all of these things. But our economic institutions are horribly designed for the modern age and they represent the single greatest point of failure in all of our economic systems and communication today, like, at least in my opinion from I mean, this is this is the thing that I like to go study and discover and read about. So, you know, I, I'm biased. That's the thing that I'm looking at. Um, but in, in my opinion, there's nothing holds a candle. I mean, we're talking about the thing that destroys civilizations and countries. I mean, it seems like the magnitude is really hard to uh, compare. If I had to point at one thing in the last 200 years that has done more damage that has been a greater economic strain and a greater source of corruption than anything else, it's money. It's, it's how our money is designed and the fact that it is based on this trust-based model that it just grants so much power. It's like, you know, the, the, the Google saying, uh, uh, do no evil. Um, it's, it's not about, you don't want to create massive networks and massive sources of power because then you have to rely on someone to choose to not do evil. And Bitcoin's uh, cryptography, it's can't do evil. It's how do we design systems in which there isn't power? How do we design a system in which there is not this central point of control that someone can manipulate and rather than, or abuse, and rather than trusting them not to do it, rather than giving them a, a magic wand that lets them do whatever the hell they want and then say, don't do anything with this, just destroy the wand, destroy the the source of authority in our monetary institutions and that's what bitcoin does or really it it massively distributes it rather than centrally um it, it centralizes it but the four economic assurances that they get into um in, in this paper uh, i think are a really cool perspective to think about how Bitcoin is so novel in comparison to the legacy finance system is that let, let's say, what do we want to get? What's the purpose of a financial system? What is it supposed to do for us that enables a, a solid economic foundation for us to do business on, for us to communicate with, um, for, for the source of everything we are able to do um, to create economic prosperity? Like, that's what a financial system does, right? It's the accounting system of the one mechanism of exchange, the economy, this giant system that allows us to create economic prosperity. Without it, that can't exist. So how do, what assurances do we want from that financial system in order, to, um, in order to provide a base for economic prosperity to exist, for it to work? So the first one they get into that value should be able to flow uh, 
be exchanged globally and to flow freely. You know, honestly, even without the, the trust-based mechanism itself, even without capital controls, um, the, the ability for value to be exchanged is incredibly difficult and incredibly slow just because of all the layers and disconnect between these institutions, particularly, particularly when you're going across jurisdictions. Um, like when you're trading from one country to the next, I mean, Lord knows how many banking institutions it goes through and how many business days it takes. Uh, you know, God forbid it's on a weekend or a holiday, like, you know, uh, like just the very nature of the infrastructure is extremely poorly suited for the digital age. And that's in, that's in the digital age. It's I mean, it's so much easier for me to release a podcast episode to thousands of people in Bitcoin who are all over the world, in Europe, in the US, in uh, Asia, wherever the hell they are. Um, and so, man, I can have it, I could do it live, live on Twitter for 10,000 followers. But my ability to send money through the banking system is hilariously impossible to compare to. Like, it's so bad that, like, that idea is just silly. I, I can't even imagine, like, like take like the Lightning Trust Chain, for example, like it moved to, you know, like 100 con con countries or something like that. And there were like 300 people involved. Um, and, you know, essentially every every transaction was instant. Uh, it, how, how could you like the idea of just trying that, like the first five hops is just almost is just silly. And as soon as it goes to a country that's got capital controls, you're just you you run the risk of just never going through of just the money just disappearing. Particularly when we're talking about a small amount, while at the same time the thing would be completely eaten alive by fees. Whereas what was it? How much were we adding to the trust chain? Was it like ten thousand sats or something like that every time, or a thousand sats? I, I can't. I think it was ten thousand, um, like a dollar. That that would make sense. Uh, so like we were adding, we were adding less than what would be just the normal fee to make the transfer to begin with to it. And it was increasing by that much, you know, like the fees were a sat, 10 sats, like they were tiny fees. Again, not even close to possible in the legacy system. And that's, that's without even addressing capital controls. But in this context, the the thesis here, the ARK Invest decided to focus solely on capital controls. And the other topic is, you know, something that's got its own rabbit hole. Um, but uh, uh, just looking at capital controls is, you know, PayPal, the number of stories. I mean, there's whole, there are whole communities dedicated to those who have been just obliterated by PayPal. Business accounts that have been shut down. Longtime customers that have had their accounts frozen and no recourse. There are some serious PayPal uh, horror stories out there. Um, and, you know, you've seen it at every level. Like, you know, PayPal is kind of like that lowest layer. But then you've got like Visa uh, and MasterCard, like confiscation of uh, WikiLeaks. Um, WikiLeaks for telling the truth, not for, you know, lies and spreading conspiracy theories. WikiLeaks has never had to, is the only journalistic institution in the world that has never had to retract a story for being false. For, a, for lying to its audience. But they had $40 million, I think it was, frozen um, in their, I think it was in Wells Fargo or something like that. 
I can't remember exactly the banking institution, uh, but uh, payments were uh, shut down. Like Visa and MasterCard would no longer fulfill donations to um, to WikiLeaks. And what's funny is that they had to. This was really early on. This was actually one of the big, a major moment in Bitcoin's history, proving its censorship resistance, proving the fact that it can grant those assurances. Is they actually survived? Um, I think this was back in 2013, maybe 2014. I, I can't remember exactly when. Well, no, I guess it would have to be before that because I think Satoshi actually made a, yeah, Satoshi was still around. He actually made a comment that this was too early and that WikiLeaks should not do this because like Bitcoin might actually be at, at threat. You know, it might bring too much attention to Bitcoin while it's still an infant. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure it was Satoshi who kind of pleaded. This is, I'm sorry, WikiLeaks, please don't draw attention to us right now. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so WikiLeaks accepted Bitcoin and took on a ton of Bitcoin donations because they were um, restricted from any other sort of banking access. The political powers that be decided that they had no ownership, that they were not able to do transactions. They just could not participate in the digital banking sphere. And so they survived off of Bitcoin. And in doing so, they actually thanked them because, you know, we went through like a big hype cycle not too long after that. And, uh, and then WikiLeaks actually posted a, uh, posted like a tweet saying, thank you to the U.S. government and MasterCard. Like, like th thank you to everybody who um, uh, basically shut down our banking uh, access uh, to force us to pay attention to Bitcoin because we just made a 10,000% return on everybody who donated to us. Um, and now we are not reliant on you at all. We can continue to operate in lieu of any access to the traditional financial system. And this was years ago. Um, so the, the ability to enable that, even at that stage, is really, really powerful. And this is like they say in this in this uh, paper is that this is all levels, all levels of um, capital controls, of financial controls, of, uh, you know, uh, companies, even like small companies and payment processors um, over policing their users. If, you know, for multiple different reasons, a for power grab to um, unfairly collect and then sell data on all of their customers um, and, you know, and then sometimes just because they're afraid of what a government might do if they don't collect enough information, so they go overboard and now they're this huge central point of failure with hackers um, and, uh, and data leaks. And then to deal with ones that are cross-jurisdiction, like the levels of um, uh, like KYC and like intrusion that they need to do with their customers or how they should treat their customers um, because, because they're in multiple jurisdictions. Um, that they don't know which government is going to shut them down. I think I mentioned recently because I read it somewhere and I wish I could remember off the top of my head. I'll see if maybe I can find it. But I read somewhere recently, or maybe I was listening to something. I don't remember. Um, but uh, talking about how Western Union actually essentially operates illegally in a handful of countries knowing that what they're, that they basically aren't allowed, quote unquote, to do what they're doing in the countries under the assumption, like they, they work under the knowledge that a lot of their things are going to get shut down. They'll have funds confiscated, but that's, so they charge fees. They, they basically take it as like a, 
built-in costs that they have to deal with of just unreliable jurisdictions, um, unfair rules, and that they'll survive long enough because people need them. And, you know, if they don't draw enough attention, but as soon as they become a problem for somebody in power, it's like, okay, well, we, we could just smash you. We can just shut everything down and confiscate these funds and this, you know, these buildings and this sort of thing. So they have to operate under that assumption, just knowing that that cost is going to be there. And then you get into some of the other things they mention in this piece of like uh, just fixing exchange rates, just being able to destroy the communication of value um, to create economic distortions. Uh, like this in and of itself is a, um, is, a, is a huge hindrance to actual capital flow and to um, prosperous economic activity is if you're misallocating, if it forces citizens to buy capital that's destructive, um, that prevents them from actually being productive and loses some efficiency, some incredible efficiency by being able to trade with, uh, you know, somebody who has a, a different resource at a low cost and instead it's an incredibly high cost or um, uh, some alternative product that they can't do in their jurisdiction or that they need to, you know, build out certain types of manufacturing. Like all these price controls and the manipulation of the markets uh, just destroy the ability to communicate that, to, to uh, actually efficiently exchange this information and therefore just uh, basically poisons the economy within the jurisdiction. It can't have good economic communication and therefore it can't have good economic productivity. And there's just a built-in poverty ceiling, essentially, that, you, that they, the economy can't break through without proper economic communication and free flow of capital and it's kind of cool that they uh have a chart in here about um uh the they, i had never actually seen this or read anything specifically about it but it makes it makes perfect sense like if you'd asked me i'd have been like oh yeah like capital controls are definitely on the rise but i actually see a chart in here of like which companies are lowering capital controls and which country, countries are raising capital controls and that they crossed in, what is this, 2005, 95, 10. So maybe 2011, it looks like, they crossed and the number of countries reducing, or the share of countries reducing, um, basically crossed under and capital controls are on a significant rise. Um, it's kind of cool to see that there's actually a chart for that. Um, I'll have a, uh, again, I'll have links in the show notes so you can download this PDF. There's Charts all the way through this thing, as, as you could tell, I've been trying to mention each one in the read, but there's some really good data to accompany this stuff. And uh, I highly recommend going and checking out and actually downloading it and uh, looking at all of this. And next, we've got Assurance 2, um, property rights. Uh, the, the craziest thing about this is if you don't have property, this is kind of on order of the same problem like these things are deeply connected to each other but the free flow of capital requires the ownership of that capital like like economic communication can't happen if you don't own the value that you're trying to communicate with um uh, but uh, this starts off with just straight out an important indicator of economic prosperity is the protection of property rights and that is flat out you cannot have uh it, a prosperous economy you cannot have a wealthy country without property rights they go hand in hand they are two sides of the exact same coin and the coin doesn't exist without them both 
And that is one thing that we talk about a lot on this show and we've hit from many different perspectives, but that all property to some varying degree is highly dependent. All digital property, more specifically, is highly dependent on some other institution. And they've got this little graph, which I've never, I don't, I'm not 100% sure if I've ever heard this concept, but of deep, of shallow property and deep property, that, that there is a thing that you can have that's uh, derived with or without authority, um, like its ownership is. And then there is shallow property, things that are highly dependent on authority. Anything digital is essentially 100% highly dependent as highly dependent on an authority as it gets. It's almost universally a institution that is um, uh, giving rise to that. If we're talking about a financial asset or something, something that's like a legal obligation, it, the nature of it being a legal obligation is that it is being enforced by a third party, that someone else is recognizing that. Um, so that is basically universal in the digital space. And that is one of the most potent differentiators of bitcoin is that bitcoin is one where uh it, you have a you have digital property that has nothing to do nothing to do with a third party there's nobody that tells you whether or not it's yours not your keys not your coins your keys your coins it's just the keys that's all it is the bitcoin system doesn't care about anything but whether or not you can sign with the correct private key that's it End of story. That is the owner. But even like physical assets across the board are extremely, like almost all shallow. Even gold, even things that you can, you can hide or carry with you on your person. Uh, I mean, we've seen capital controls. We all know the stories. Um, the one that I talked about in my Bitblock Boom speech of uh, a Herman Francis Mark um, who escaped Germany. Uh, in fact, I, mean, I should probably post that as an episode. I'll I'll share my speech um, with you guys uh, for anybody who didn't get to hear it at Bitblock Boom. But about the uh, chemist who um, snuck across the border with uh, his entire life savings in platinum wire. A really fun story, but I'll, I'll save it. I'll save it for uh, when I post the speech. But then you get like so like even gold or whatever, like the or, or platinum wire. A good example. Um, like the amount that you can take is highly restricted. You know, like I could maybe take a few thousand dollars worth of gold across the border pretty easily, like hidden. But if I was moving a hundred million dollars worth of gold, what the hell? Like, what? I can't, I can't even, I can't possibly carry that much. Like, how would I do that? Like trying to pull that off is a whole different story. Um, so despite the fact that it's quote unquote, a deep property, like a, like a deep protection uh, it's still pretty shallow um, in the grand scheme of things, particularly when we're talking about an adversary like a nation state. And then real estate is blatantly obvious. It's only because of uh, you know public records that you even own it. That's something you, you see down in, uh, uh, like Venezuela was an example, Cuba, um, uh, Honduras, um, I think, was a big place where this was happening. But just corruption was so unbelievably bad that um, they would just go in and change the public records. That like corrupt officials would just get bribed for like a couple of thousand dollars, and they would just go in and say somebody else owns this house. Like they would literally just do, like tear up your deed to your property 
and put in a, a new one that says somebody else owns it. And then they just go and arrest you because you stole, you're, you're just in somebody else's property and there's nothing you can do about it. Like you have no recourse. The, the sole arbiter and enforcer of those property rights is the one that's saying you don't own it anymore. And this is not uncommon. Like, like this is, you know, you give somebody that power and it's that easy to change. Um, like, what are you going to do? Like, how are, you, how are you going to contest that when the, the enforcement system is so corrupt that it's the one just decide, this arbitrarily changing rules? They're the ones that enforce it. And that goes in all sorts of, uh, you know, variances. Like, like, we have largely the same problem in the U.S. It's now in the billions of dollars in property and cars and even houses that have been seized with civil asset forfeiture. No, nobody's committed a crime or nobody's been convicted of a crime. Nobody's even charged with a crime, but the, the police are just straight up stealing stuff from people. Um, there was a story of a house, uh, literally a, their, the person's house, the parent's house of a teenager who was caught with like a small amount of cocaine and uh, they confiscated their property, their house, as if it was an asset that had been used in the drug trade and they genuine they seriously could not get their house back and the court case isn't even with them like the conflict is a a, a debate or a uh, uh a contest between the house and the state so they aren't even part of a lot of the proceedings which is absolutely absurd this is something that happens all over the place. I mean, not necessarily the confiscation of a house. I'm sure that is a significant outlier in it. But to think that it could be that, it could get that ridiculous and that there's nothing they can do. They're stuck for years fighting over whether or not their house has committed a crime and are literally kicked out of their lives until they prove otherwise. It is guilty until proven innocent of an inanimate object. I mean, it's so absurd as to be comical like it kind of sounds like a babylon b uh parody but no it's a true story and it happens rather frequently so just i mean those things alone but like just to think of the scope of all of the problems with the idea of uh enforcing property rights or the guarantee or the assurance of property rights um that is a requirement for economic prosperity and one of the sources they uh, post, they, they put at the bottom for uh, a lot of the things that they talk about in this section um, in particular is something that we have read on the show. Um, uh, and I talk about, I bring up a lot because it's still to this day, one of my favorites, it's just such a fascinating piece, um, is Hasu's uh, Bitcoin and the Promise of Independent Property Rights. So I will remember to leave that uh, link in the show notes as well, because if you haven't heard that one, it's such a good piece digging into exactly how Bitcoin, uh, really what Bitcoin is competing with. Because we think of it as like, oh, it's a payment processor. It's, oh, it's a different money. It's competing with banks or whatnot. But its fundamental competition is the judicial system. It's, it's the enforcement of property rights for financial assets, for monetary assets. It's competing with the central bank, with the entire U.S. judicial system and the U.S. government because it is providing an extra national, global, free-flowing capital ownership system. It is property rights 
that has nothing to do with the government. Really, really awesome piece that you should definitely listen and or read. Okay, Assurance 3. Uh, I've already gone on for quite some time. Let's see if we can get through these two uh, pretty quickly. Uh, rules should be enforced reliably and predictably. Okay, well, we kind of hit that already. Um, the, the previous two examples are examples of why uh, Assurance 3 has just been ridiculous. Um, but if you just look, uh, just focus solely on central banks, which they did in this piece, uh, look at the variance just in the last 15 years of policies of raising interest rates, lowering interest rates, printing $3 trillion, um, printing $1.7 trillion, like, like QE1, 2, 3, 4, infinity. Like, I mean, the reliability, it's like a, it's like a game of chicken, uh, just trying to guess uh, what the hell the central bank is going to do and uh, like whether or not you can expect the economy to plummet into credit deflation because we're over leveraged out the ass or if the central bank is just going to print a buku's amount of money and buy up all the crappy debt. Uh, do I buy a house? I mean, like the, the the entire thing is just a guess on what a boardroom of far too powerful bankers and politicians are going to decide to do. It's as if the 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 rules of the game are just constantly playing. I mean, imagine a game where, uh, like a football game, where the ref is just constantly yelling out new rules, and uh, it, it would have nothing to do with being good at football. And, and suddenly, the game is about how well you can predict what the next rule of the referee is going to be, or how close you are to that referee so that you can get that ref to tell you what the next rule is going to be so that you can be in the right spot or to tackle the right guy as the rules are just whatever. They're just totally up to whoever, uh, whoever's running the show. And it, gets, it creates a system where people are playing the refs instead of the game. So rather than creating economic prosperity and rather than being productive and uh, trying to figure out how to create value, they're trying to figure out how to play the ref. They're trying to figure out how to make sure that they know the right politicians and the right regulators just so that they don't get screwed when going about their regular business. Again, another situation where you've got a system where economic prosperity is being bled dry. Like you can't produce. You can't create value because you're totally at the whims of the people who are just going to redefine what that is like whether or not you actually got any money from that or whether or not you're able to store any of the value or whether or not it's still yours or whether or not you hold the right political opinion or whether or not you can actually send it to this state or this country or uh, trade with these people when every when everything is dependent on someone else agreeing or aligning with you and they have the authority to not and benefit from it, it's just going to fall apart. It's just a matter of time. Like the 56 other episodes of hyperinflation, it's, it's, a, it's a question of when, not if. Massive sources of power will be corrupted, and it's just a question of how long it takes before a bad enough person or a uh, morally ambiguous enough person figures out just how much they can profit from it. And then, of course, assurance four, the verifiability of the system is that how do we even choose 
which bank to put our money in, uh, which uh, corporation is producing value, which money is good and which isn't, um, which one has been inflated to an enormous degree, which one is over leveraged. Like, we just don't know. We can't know any of this stuff because it's all closed off. We can't audit any of it. And therefore, we're, it's like trying to decide which steak is the best one in the store and being blindfolded. And there are literally rotten flies all over its steaks. And then there are fresh, like freshly cut organic grass-fed steak. And we are just blind, noses plugged, ears covered up, and we're just grabbing. Like you have no idea what you're going to end up with because we can't verify or check anything. And yet again, that is a recipe for disaster. I mean, if there's no accountability, what, where is the incentive to be responsible? Or are we just, is this whole mechanism just supposed to run off the fact that everybody's just going to be really nice and have a really strong, independent moral constitution and they're always going to do the right thing even in the face of being able to get away with any terrible bad thing that they want and to confiscate billions or trillions of dollars and basically live like kings, but they're going to turn that down to be responsible? And nobody's going to check up on them and you know hold their foot to the fire about it. They're not going to be accountable for it. They're just going to willingly decide to uh, take the incredibly difficult and uh, poor path instead of the insanely lucrative path of the monetary kings. Yeah, I don't know. That seems unrealistic. But you know, we don't have that problem with Bitcoin. For better or for worse, it is the most transparent monetary system in the world. And we are going to get into all the ways in which this is a polar opposite, just an incredible comparison to the legacy system according to these assurances and in other ways why it is a novel economic institution and why it so uniquely and profoundly can guarantee these assurances in a way that the legacy financial system can't even compare. So we are going to get into that tomorrow with the continuation of the ARK Invest Bitcoin thesis, Bitcoin, a novel economic institution. Until tomorrow, you guys better be stacking sats, holding your keys, securing your future, and learning your way down the path to digital sovereignty. And of course, subscribing to Bitcoin Audible and sharing it with everybody you know. Thanks for listening, guys. And until then, take it easy. This has been a 111 production, and you are listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.